2: There's an interesting way in which this plays out, and so the other question I want to ask, and then we're going to open it up to the floor, is this: um, you were interviewed on, on Fox when you arrived here, and one of the questions that got asked was about how the Bible. One of the objections to the Bible is is that it is a tool of oppression, and that there's a lot of suffering in the world. That, that, those were two of the questions that you were asked, and I really liked the way you responded to this question uh, in terms of opening up the discussion. Uh, in terms of thinking about, yes, there are bad things that have happened in the name of religion, but. So fill that out for us. How do you handle the, you know, there's suffering and terrible things have been done in the name of Christ throughout history. Someone throws that at you. Uh, how do you respond?
3: Well, the first thing is to say, yep, you're, you're absolutely right. Because any Christian who knows their history knows that some terrible things have been done. Uh, and they were all able to find Bible passages to support them. So we live with that, right? Um, but m- my response um, when asked that question was basically to say yes, the Bible has been used for, to support slavery and war and oppression and bigotry. But curiously, all of those things are universals across human culture. You found them in Babylon, Egypt, Greece, and Rome. Mm-hmm. You certainly don't need the Bible to inspire them. So it's not surprising that these universals of human culture, war, oppression, etc., uh, receive justification in Christian lands from the Bible because they're human universals. The more interesting question that has to be asked is what things are not human universals that have been inspired wherever the Bible has influenced culture? That is a far more interesting question because there can't be any doubt that the unique things the Bible has given Western culture are its long tradition of charity for the poor, humility, the notion of human rights, and you know we could go on hospitals and so on. These, these things, especially charity for the poor, humility, love of enemy, these things, uh, you didn't find in Greece and Rome mm-hmm. or Babylon or Egypt. They are unique contributions of the Bible. So I'm trying to distinguish between how the Bible's been used and what it has actually inspired. I Sometimes, if I, had, I didn't have time with the mm-hmm. fox, I was going to say the foxy lady. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I can't even remember her name now. Yeah. Anyway. Um, anyway. <laughs> Anyway, uh, I, um, I often say, if you heard my nine-year-old attempt The Cello Suites by Johann Sebastian Bach, uh, you might think Johann didn't really know how to write a tune, right? Because you'd hear her go rrr, rrr, rrr. But if you hear Yo-Yo Ma play The Cello Suites, you, you're in heaven, right? We know to distinguish between the beautiful performance and the sometimes very ordinary, or the beautiful composition rather, and the sometimes very ordinary performance. Uh, and so it's important to do that when it comes to Christian history as well.
2: Okay, now if, if, as you think of questions that you want to ask John, we have two microphones. You can see where they are. Go ahead and, and come over and, and I've got, we've got a take her right here at the start, so we'll just dive right in. something i uh often hear from non Christians is that religion is a crutch. we rely on it um because we need it um it's it's what foolish people use to make them feel peace It's what we use to uh make us feel peace about death and about dying and all that stuff mm. how How do you best respond to that?
3: I acknowledge that it's probably true uh but but some thirsts correspond to to real things that quench your thirst too so it's a so i often um just try and point out that it, it's actually a non-argument because uh, it, it really comes from ludwig Feuerbach, right um the philosopher in the 1840s and then picked up by Sigurd freud uh, in his psychoanalytical tradition that basically said god and religion is a projection of needs yeah so you particularly Freud, in the Freudian version, it's um, parental needs from young, you project onto a being. right? And and the more you feel the parental need, the more you're gonna be a believer in God. That was Freud's position. But of course, very clever people at the time just responded with the obvious, uh, once you hear it, the obvious response. But what about your atheism? Couldn't that just be your attempt to project a kind of aversion to your overbearing father? (laughs) Think about that for a sec. Of course. (laughs) It cuts both ways. Um, Could Christianity be a crutch? Sure it could. Could atheism be just an attempt to get out of uh, having anyone looking over your shoulder? Of course it could. That doesn't resolve anything. Because some thirsts correspond to real thirst quenches. Uh, You know, if I hold a glass of water and I say I'm thirsty and you say you're only thirsty or it's rather you only believe in water because you're thirsty. (laughs) (laughs) How good's that? You only believe in water because you're thirsty. Hmm, but there's also water. And so I, I would put it back to the people that it cuts both ways, the atheist and the Christian, both have to live with the proposition, the possibility that we've just invented convictions to satisfy urges, so you need to therefore, because the atheist can't win on this one, you need to shift the ground to say, well, what are the reasons for thinking one thing is true over another? Um, I've noticed
1: that when, I, when I've when i engaged with atheists, atheists or non-believers, it tends to be like they'll ask me a question and maybe I'll, I'll give a good response or maybe I won't and they'll be like, okay, well, what about this? And then it goes back and forth for a while and eventually it'll come to a question that obviously I can't answer. Um, and so I, I found that, it, it, at least in my experience, it tends to be um, more of a an emotional response against Christianity rather than a logical one. Mm-hmm. And so even though I might have all their answers, they're still not gonna believe or accept it or even like consider it as a rational response. So what, what, I, like, how do you engage that? How do you, how do you deal with that? Like what's your response to, to that kind I of I try struggle?
3: and call it out. Um, sometimes if, if, I'm, if I'm with a, you know, an atheist who's really thoughtful, um, I often put to them um, Aristotle's theory of how persuasion works. Uh, and you've all heard of the sort of logos, pathos, ethos, uh, tripartite view of persuasion. And Aristotle really, in his book on rhetoric, has, spends a lot of time saying good arguments and persuasion needs logos. It also needs a little bit, pathos, the emotional dimension, but you shouldn't rely on it too much, he said. And then he said um, there's a social dimension, ethos, that is we tend to trust those that we trust. You think about that, we trust those we trust. In other words, we, we trust the statements of those we trust. And this translates into all sorts of things, including just the teenager wanting to socialise with his peers, ends up believing what his peers does. It's, uh, that's the socialisation of knowledge. And, and, and I often talk about this and I say, look, you know, when you hear a Christian tell how they became a Christian, you'll often hear them being really honest about how it was a little bit of logos, a little bit of pathos, a little bit of ethos. Logos, they heard some good arguments that, that were was, that was satisfying intellectually. Pathos, they heard the message of forgiveness and, and they longed for it. It was like psychologically very attractive. Uh, and the ethos, they hung out with Christians and they saw what a compelling community of goodness they were and they thought, man, I want that. You often hear a Christian talk like that. They don't describe it as Logos, pathos, ethos. And I put it back to my atheist friend. Are you honest enough to admit that your unbelief is the result of a similar threefold uh, set of factors. That's sure, you've got some intellectual things, but it seems to me that there's some emotional or aesthetics going on and also some socialization. And we're not being honest with ourselves if we say, I am only an atheist because of the intellectual arguments. If there were evidence, I'd believe. It's just doesn't, that's just not the real world of how belief forms.
2: I want to chime in here, let me talk about a goal when you have conversations like this. We, we, we did develop this in the podcast. Um, sometimes when you get in a conversation, it, it breaks down into a debate and you're trying to win a debate. I actually think that it's more fundamental in having these conversations to, v- to try and keep it and view it as a conversation in which the goal is not to win the debate or win the argument. The goal is to give the other person pause about how how they're thinking. If I can give a person pause about how they're thinking, get them to consider there might be an alternative, et cetera, I'm actually opening them up to a process. And and sometimes that is done through a combination of not only what you say but how you say it. Mm. And and I think that sometimes in the midst of of particularly when you operate it out of an academic environment with an academic background, you push the logos, to use your term, the logos or the argument side of it, the rational argument of it so hard that you forget that part of what you're trying to do is you're actually asking someone to change significantly where they are and oftentimes that doesn't happen in a moment. Now obviously if Paul meets Jesus on the Damascus Road that happens immediately, but that's sometimes the exception versus the rule. Usually it's, and if you listen to most testimonies this is true, it's part of a long process in which in which God, and I'll use a biblical word, drew the person to Himself. You know it came in steps. And so I think that's, I, I think changing how we think about, even though being engaged in those conversations is an important part of thinking through um, what you're doing when you engage a skeptic or an atheist.
3: Obviously. And as simple as self-assessing, have I left this person with the impression that Christianity is not only true, but good? Mm-hmm. See, it's possible to have left the conversation having won the argument and convinced them that you, know, you had the better arguments, but, but that, that they think Christians are now jerks. Mm-hmm. Well have you, have you conveyed Christianity? I think there's a question mark over that.
0: The last few weeks there's been a viral video by Stephen Fry being interviewed by Guardian concerning the problem of evil, which is certainly nothing new. But uh, I'd like to read a short quote from it and just hear, if you were to stand in front of Stephen Fry right now, how would you approach him and how would we as students, uh, how would you recommend that we approach someone who's deeply impacted by the problem of evil? Let me go ahead and read the quote. Stephen says this, how dare you create a world in which there is such misery that is not our fault. It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-spirited, stupid God who creates a world which is so full of injustice and pain?
3: Yeah, well, it really depends how long we've got, right? (laughs) I mean, if I'm locked in a room with Stephen Fry uh, for a day, I'd, ha- I'd have a, which would be very pleasant, right? I'd have a, I'd have a, um, I'd have a, v- a very different strategy from if I were on TV. In a four, minute in a, yeah, four yeah, minute, in a four minute, minute chat. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So one of the questions I was asked on Fox yesterday was, uh, was it yesterday?
2: Mm-hmm. It was yesterday. Yeah. Time flies when you're having fun. Oh, well, yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I must be having a whole lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> was this, this exact uh, question. And... I knew I didn't have a day in a room with Stephen Fry. So uh, I said, look, the Bible does have some things to say about the origin of evil. Yeah, that's right. uh, The restoration of everything. But, but in the end, the most powerful thing uh, the Christian faith has to offer is something that you can't find in any other philosophical tradition. And that is a picture of the God you bring that kind of complaint to. Is one you're allowed to? Stephen, you are allowed to express those sentiments. The Psalms are full of them. Maybe not in that exact um, poetic license that he <laughs> en- enjoys. Um, but the same complaint, lament at God. And what's more, we have a picture in Jesus Christ of God coming so close and sharing in our pain, God himself having wounds. Um, it was Edward shillito the poet, after the Second World War, who said, um, to our wounds, only God's wounds could speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone, to Jesus. And for me, this is not a whole answer, but, but in a brief time, I, and I think I did say something like this at Vox, um, when my daughter grazes her knee and runs to me, she doesn't say, Dad, what's the origin of this evil?
2: LAUGHTER <laughs>
3: She just wants to know that I've got her and that I sympathise. And I would say, regardless of the philosophical answers to these questions, what Christianity offers that no other tradition can offer is a picture of God that would willingly give himself on a cross for us. And even if we can't always trace his hand, we can trust his heart. The cross wears that heart on the sleeve, right? Yeah.
2: Very good. Let me let me uh, let let's pursue this a little bit because I think the issue of evil and the existence of evil is is a difficult one. We we discuss this in a cultural engagement chapel, much like the one you'll participate in tomorrow, discussing genocide in the Old Testament, and there, there is there is this sense. In this complaint, of how dare you? Um, how dare you fill my life with pain and suffering? It's it's a it's a it's a fist in the in the face of God in some ways. Uh, when sometimes what pain does for us is remind us we are not God. Um, and uh, that doesn't. Take away the pain or the suffering that people go through or that exists in the world, but it is a reminder that sometimes, in our in our reaction to what is taking place, um, we we it's either meaningless, okay, and so none of it makes any sense at all. That's a real word of comfort, Um, or or there is something to face up to. And it's, it's almost God's answer to Job, you know? Um, where were you when the creation happened and who were you, you know? It, 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 there's an element of that answer where you go, that really doesn't answer Job's pain. But it does answer the issue of this design, this claim for design and this claim for sovereignty and this reminder that we as the creatures don't get to make the rules and create the
0: expectations this episode is brought to you in part by thomas nelson publisher of grieve breathe receive finding a faith strong enough to hold us written and narrated by pastor steve carter grieve breathe receive those three words became a profound mantra for steve carter during a season of deep healing the kind that comes after painful trauma grieve Breathe, receive is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com/audio to learn more. Yeah,
3: but I also want to affirm uh, the way it, it is in the Western tradition that you have this fist shaking mm-hmm. at God. Mm-hmm. How is that in the Western tradition? it's because the Bible has allowed it. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I would say there are a bunch of things in our Western culture that you, that you and I normally interpret as secular um, criticisms. They're actually just Christian ideas, slight Christian heresies. So the, the secular insistence that churches are all hypocrites. Well, that, that's Jesus, you know, that was Jesus' line. The, um, <laughs> 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 right, and, and 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 more broadly, the Bible is relentless in claiming that some of its key heroes mm-hmm. were ratbags. Mm-hmm. So, that's a that's an Australian term, in case you didn't recognise
4: it. <laughs> <laughs>
2: okay, oh, okay, sorry.
3: <laughs> Awful. <laughs> Awful. Um, and, and, this, and this freedom of Stephen Fry, that, that fist shaking at God, is actually a Christian heresy. Uh, and I, I do like to point out that, that to people. I, I'm of the view that the only theodicy is eschatology. Hmm. It's only in the end that God can answer this question. It's only if he can prove that the path he has chosen, this path of fall and evil and redemption achieves a greater good than if he hadn't gone down that path, uh, that this question can be resolved. But the thing is, if God can pull that off, it's a resolution. So so I am of the view that the, it's the only theodicy is eschatology. Quickly
2: tell, because we've got other people who want to ask questions, the story about the Iman and the debate you have with the Iman, but that deals with this question. That the idea that um, um, uh,
3: that, that God-loving enemies? Yeah, God-loving yeah. enemies. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, we had a lovely um, discussion, uh, public <laughs> discussion, uh, with, with a Muslim advocate who's prominent in Sydney. And um, it was great, you know. We chat a little bit, uh, and then we cross-examined each other, then threw it open to um, to the floor. And one of my questions to him was, look, I've read the Quran, I've read a whole bunch of the Hadiths. Uh, I can't find, but could you tell me, help me, because I really want to know. Is there a passage that tells us that Allah loves those who are opposed to him? Loves his enemies. And uh, dear Muhammad said, of course not. (laughs) 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 And what's more, are you saying there's a passage like that in the Bible? (laughs) It was awesome. You know, it it was like, you know, it just bowled me a beautiful ball and I was able to, you know, knock it (laughs) out of the car. He said bowled, by the way. That was a cricket
2: metaphor. Yes. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Okay,
4: go ahead.
2: (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Pitched. Pitched.
3: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, But like an underarm pitch.
2: (laughs) That's softball. But we'll discuss sports (laughs) later.
3: So and, you know, obviously um, I was able to say, well, actually, dear, uh, this is the heart of Christianity, that God loves those who are opposed to him Mm. Uh, and entered into the world and gave himself for us and It was a very striking moment. And you could tell the audience was engaged with it. There were a lot of Muslims there. And after the, after the discussion, a lot of Muslims took issue with that. Because I was sort of, that dishonours God that he would love enemies. Because, because Islam is very much tied to the honor-shame paradigm of Arabic mm-hmm. and lots of Middle Eastern culture. And so it, it, it defames God's honour. I had another public thing with a Muslim leader at the University of Western Sydney, where um, he, he, he was very polite, but he sort of almost shouted me down in the question time, saying, are you saying that God went to the toilet? Because it was about the incarnation, right? I've actually gotten an email like that from someone who's Muslim, yes. yes. Um, that God was hungry, that he had to eat, that the creator of all things needed sustenance from his own creation. And on, and on he went. And I said, yeah, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> now, the interesting thing is the Muslims go, how dare you? That guy so outdid Dixon because I sh- he showed me how foolish my view of God is. And all the secularist Sydney students are going, what a beautiful picture of God, mm-hmm. that he would do that for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm here.
1: Hi. Um, I read your book, Hearing Her Voice, A Biblical Invitation <gasps> for Women to Preach.
3: Do I run now?
1: <laughs> uh, well, I thought about running away from this microphone several times, but here I am. Um, and I just wanted to say thank you. Uh, this helped me see myself differently in the church. Huh. Thank you. Okay. Um, so
3: I don't have to retract it.
1: No. <laughs> um, and then I also have a question for you. Um, we're talking about having conversations in a way that, you know, it looks like Christ. And um, I know when I talk about this issue, which is really emotionally loaded on both sides of the issue, mm. um, about whether women can preach or not, it always seems to turn into a purely logos conversation, mm. where scripture and rationalism, and you talk tonight about appealing through pathos and ethos. And so I wondered, are there, do you have suggestions on some ways we could appeal to that regarding specifically women preaching? <laughs> well, and yes, I do know first... where you are and I do know where I'm a student and all that. And how there's many different backgrounds here, but I would like to know. Sure.
3: Firstly, thank you for saying those warm things about that book. Um, I mean, I come from probably the most conservative context imaginable where um, women uh, in many of my churches in Sydney, in, in my tradition, wouldn't ever um, uh, MC a church service, lead a church service, uh, or run a Bible study um, for mixed audiences. Maybe that's common here as well. Um, so what I've tried to do in that book, uh, without rehearsing the argument and going into the argument, uh, is to lay out why, why I think it is um, biblical for women to give what we call sermons, um, which I don't think corresponds to the thing Paul forbade in 1 Timothy 2.12. But to do it in a way that is uh, full of warmth and gentle, um, I, ho- I hope that you recognise that because... I I felt it as I wrote it. I don't feel any angst or animosity toward my um, colleagues who are um, very strict complementarians. I I see myself as a uh, a soft complementarian, I think I say in the book, or a generous complementarian. I don't know. But still a complementarian. But I tried to take the heat out of it by by being far more gentle and limited in, in what I say. In terms of strategy, look, I don't know because, I mean, I feel a little bit put on the spot, um, not knowing official policies and all that sort of thing. Um, I will let,
2: I'll let you know.
3: <laughs> uh, yeah, so I've got no idea. <laughs> yeah, let me, let,
2: me, let me just, let me, uh, let me comment, uh, if you will. Um, Actually, you have no choice, I'm going to do it. (laughs) Um, And that is, I I think there's a way to have this conversation, and the way to have this conversation is the way John writes about it. Um, And so, he lays out the biblical evidence as he sees it, takes you through it, and the response to that ought to be to engage in kind, um, with the same tone, with the same substance. Um, to respond, however, you think you should respond to it. And the unfortunate thing about some of these areas that that are that are Christian fights, if I can, I'll use that language. I mean, he, he got John got some heat for what he wrote. Um, the 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 responses is, is that sometimes the heat is all out of proportion to the discussion that the topic deserves. We get upset about where the bottom line is in terms of what someone's conclusion is without thinking through how do we discuss this and what is a disagreement as Christians, Christianly. I wish I saw more of that in this conversation. Mm. And unfortunately, many times we don't. So, um, so John, let me say that, um, that you handled this, I think, in the book very, very well. Um, there would be things we might discuss in private, but that's fine. That's part of the point of the exercise. And, uh, and I think that, that, that the way in which it was done is as exemplary as anything, and it is a lesson the church, particularly the conservative church, desperately needs as it engages in these conversations where we know that we have brothers and sisters with Christ who are as deeply committed to Jesus Christ as we are, but who think differently on this matter. So thank you. Over here.
4: Thanks. Um, I have a question about evil.
3: Hmm. I uh, thought we dealt entirely with that.
4: <laughs> <laughs> I hope. It is well said how God intervened and how He suffered for us and with us and know it, but. How can we, but my question is he made those things happen. That's number one. Number two, the Lord says I am willingly to get into it. That's his will to do it, to suffer. But as human beings, we have never been asked ahead of time to enter into suffering and enter this evil world. We all know the conversation in the book of Job between God and Satan, but Job had no clue. And how can we understand God's respect, loving, while all those things happening?
3: I tried to um, make clear that although I think there are others who make pretty good accounts of the problem of evil. I'm in the camp that the only theodicy is eschatology, which boils down to God will make it up in his kingdom. And the good that is achieved via this path will be greater than the good imaginable through any other path and the thing that gives me certainty that these are good and kind intentions is the cross so i don't have an explanation in time i mean other than the obvious humanity's fall Mm -hmm. sinful the creation itself is cursed i mean these are the things the scriptures say but i think your question is more um, particular about you know someone growing up Um, having unspeakable evil happen to them out of all proportion to their relative contribution to the evil of the world. And and so that's where the problem becomes uh, tricky. Um, I can only say that that in the kingdom, God will show us how he's made made it up to us. In time, all we have as a down payment that his ultimate intentions will be beautiful and merciful and loving is the cross, where God has shown us the length to which he will go for our good, I can, I can take him on trust. Is what I'm saying, and that isn't simply to say I just um, I just trust him wherever he takes me. Um, it means that I genuinely believe the good that he will show in the final eschaton will prove this path of creation, full redemption, is the ultimate good to his glory and to our joy.
2: Last question, over here.
1: Um, so we're talking about um, how do we live as a minority in today's culture, as a Christian minority. Um, and working with uh, youth, I've come across this question. Um, so in our effort to engage with popular culture, meaning what we listen to, what we listen um, uh, watch and where we go, um, where do we draw the line with engaging in popular culture um, but also not endorsing um, the culture that we're engaging with? Um, where, where do we draw the line?
3: Wow.
2: <laughs> in 30 words or less. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I think it's worth um, doing this in conversation with the youth that you're leading because what will shock you might not shock them the connotations that you pick up they they might not they may say oh no that's not what that means so there could be a little bit of cultural ignorance on your part as a leader equally in conversation they may see cultural ignorance ignorance on their part you may be able to show them how um, they've just accepted things that aren't that aren't biblical but in terms of listening to popular culture um, viewing it and, and so on i Personally, have a very broad and generous uh, approach to these things. Uh, All things are permissible. Uh, No, I didn't say that. Um, (laughs) It's just as well this is not recorded. Um, Actually, it is. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Um, So I'm from the. I'm from pretty far end of. We ought to be culturally engaged. Uh, but, but I think there are lines, and, and I think you can only work them out in conversation, is my point.
2: And, and I speak, I'm going to speak now as a parent. I don't think you can protect your children from, from the world that is around them completely unless you put them in a hermetically sealed box and are much better at this than most. Um, and the result that you see on the other end, if you don't talk it through with them as they grow up and actually engage in some level of engagement, will be that when they get out and have to make choices that you risk them making very bad choices. Uh, and so I would, my, my parents who weren't Christian took very much the attitude of I'd rather know what you're doing, let you talk with me about it, and engage you on why that's wise or stupid, than for me to so restrict you that your one desire in life is to make sure I don't know what you're doing. Uh, and so uh, I, I just think that there's just there's just a wisdom in the environment that you create about engagement. Not necessarily just what you engage with, but about engagement that says that I'm here to to engage with you in the messiness that is the world that we live in. And and to make that clear from the very beginning. You know, the Bible itself is actually a pretty messy book. As you said, there are rat bags in it. There are all kinds of other creatures and critters, too. And, and and a lot of the sections of the Bible that we want to engage with um, do things that if we, if they were written in, if they weren't written in the Bible, we might restrict people from being exposed to. There's something wrong about that. And so uh, my preference would be to work on creating the right kind of engagement environment. That's when you say you're generous with regard to engagement, that's what I think I'm describing. Which says, bring to me your questions, bring to me what you're exposed to. Let's think about what this is and does, and how it works or how it doesn't work, all those kinds of things, to create a discerning person as they grow up, so that when they do grow up, they can discern
3: yeah i i think i want to just add um to help uh your your teens be more critical consumers of media is is really critical mm-hmm. um, so that they can themselves they have the tools to Decode what they're being uh, told. I mean, so there was a recent example. That there's a song I can't remember, but it's like I don't know if it's number one around the world. But it's, but that that really cool tune with a screaming voice uh, about um, the church cutting me. It's about him being gay and how the church take me to church. Take me to church. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, my kids were listening to it and. And it's a, great, it's a great tune, but we, we had a big conversation. By the end, they were going, Dad. And, but <laughs> we, were just, we were just trying to work out how the messaging of the song worked. And by the end, they could see that this was a powerful, emotional, but completely untrue perspective on a universal scale. Obviously, he had experienced that kind of judgment in church. But I said to, the, to, the, to my kids, do you know anyone at St. Andrew's Roseville, their church, who is like the Christian's? this young man met. And they said, no. And so they were able to discern what is a personal story mustn't be universalized. And yet that's how often these sorts of songs impact.
1: Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well.